we go to God in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the nation in which we live and the freedoms that we get to enjoy. And we're grateful for a weekend like this that causes us to pause, to stop everything, and to be reminded that that freedom that we enjoy, that sometimes we don't even really think about because we've had it our whole lives, that that came at a great cost. It comes still today at a great cost of the men and women whose lives have been laid down for the sake of this country. And so, God, while we're grateful for those who serve our nation now in the military, we think especially of those who have given their lives so that we might be free. God, thank you for this great land. And we pray for your continued blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you knew this or not, but for over 200 years, people thought California was an island, which it kind of seems like there's a joke that I should pull out of that. But that's not, uh, it, it happened in, in 1539. It's really innocently that, that, that this thought process came to be. Uh, explorer Hernan Cortez was sent from Spain to search for an island, kind of an ideal island in the area. And after a long journey, their supplies uh, had run low. And so he made this educated guess because he had sailed up the Gulf of uh, Baja for hundreds of miles with land on both sides and water was in front of him, water was behind him. And so he turned back and he excitedly told the king and queen that he had found the island that they were looking for. And this belief was further reinforced uh, by future inadequately supplied expeditions. Uh, And so... The, the island of California was born and, and existed. Actually, maps were printed. People were educated. And the physical map became the mental reality, even though expeditions as early as 40 years later, just 40 years after it was said, this is an island, 40 years later, it was proven that it was indeed a peninsula. It still was known as the island and thought of as the island of California for 200 years. So... Why did it take so long to change the map? That's the question. What took so long to change the map? Uh, It's because once our beliefs become fixed, and so this is what we're going to be talking about this morning, once our beliefs beliefs become fixed, we interpret everything around us through the lens of that reality. Ah, This morning we're beginning a series, as Michelle mentioned, on the, the life of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles... Go ahead and get into the Old Testament. Go to the book of Joshua. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 1. You'll also find the notes on your handout for this morning. I hope those are helpful. And if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, you can go straight to that. Go to the events page and you'll find the, the verses for today, the passage for today, as well as notes there as well. And while you're doing that, if this is your first Sunday here, uh, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor. I'm really glad that you're here today, sharing today with us. And if you're new to our area and checking us out online, thanks for doing that. And I hope that you'll join us here in the, uh, in the room soon. Uh, so, all right. So, Joshua, the children of Israel are about to shatter what their parents thought was reality. They are on the edge of the land that God promised them. We call it the promised land, (laughs) the land God promised them. We call it the promised land. So if you didn't know that, there you go. That's why it's called that. They are poised. They are ready to enter it for the second 
time. I say ready to enter it for the second time, even though the first time they didn't enter it, right? Forty years before, under the leadership of Moses, after they had left the slavery of Egypt, they come to this very same spot right outside the promised land, and they send 12 spies in to check it out. Ten spies come back out and say, it's impossible, we can't do it. But two spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, pleaded with the Israelites to trust God, but they would not do it. So the whole Israelite community wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and an entire generation of adults died in the wilderness, except Caleb and Joshua and Moses. But Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. So when the Israelites came back to the border for a second time, God takes Moses to the top of a mountain where he can show him all of the land. And it's on top of this mountain that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, and God buried him on that mountain. And no one knows to this day where his grave is. I just wanted you to see that. So because now Joshua is the leader of the Israelites. And his job is to lead them into the promised land, to take possession of it, to own it. The last generation had drawn this map that made the, land, the promised land seem impossible. There was no way they were going to be able to take that land. And God is about to show them the reality that their parents had so badly missed. But before he did this, he sits down with Joshua, has kind of a pre-war pep talk. Uh, with him, if you would. And it's in this pep talk that God shows us the principles that the Israelites would need if they're going to take the promised land. And it's in what he says to Joshua that we will see if we want to be people who walk into the promises that he has made to us in our lives for our lifetimes, if we want to claim those promises, these have to be true of us as well. So Joshua chapter 1 is where we're going to begin uh, in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites, and I will give you every place where you set your foot, just like I promised Moses. Uh, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all of the days of your life. And just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. So be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the left or to the right, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will be prosperous and you will be successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp, tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in, and you will take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. So this is the talk. Uh, and what's the first thing that God says to Joshua? All right? It's actually, as he sits down with Joshua, it's the first five words he says to him. Do you see them? Moses, my servant, is dead. Well, then that sounds like a kick in the pants. 
I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, boy, it seems like God isn't very good at these pep talks. You know what I'm saying? I mean, why would God remind Joshua of that? Here's why. Because for all of us, moving to God's promises, if we want to move forward into his promises, it will include letting go of, of your past. It includes letting go of my past. Here's what this meant for him. Joshua and Moses didn't just work together. They didn't just lead together. They were friends. They were very close. How would you like to replace your friend in leadership? Or more, how would you like to replace a legend in leadership? I just, I wonder how inadequate Joshua felt for this task that was now ahead of him. I mean, the Israelites could have sat on the side of the Jordan River and just recalled the glory days of Moses and what God did through him. Do you remember the manna? The manna. Who could forget the manna? It was great. Where did that come from? What was that? I don't know. But manna, little peanut butter, little jelly. I mean, we're talking, we're talking a meal here, right? And you remember the 10 plagues? Oh, the 10 plagues. What was your favorite plague? Well, my favorite, you know, the, the, the pillar of fire and the cloud, water from a rock. I mean, they could have sat around on the other side of the Jordan River and relived all of the glory days. And for Joshua, I wonder, being overshadowed by what God had already done through them, they could have sat there and done that and never one time entered the promised land. And so God reminds Joshua, Moses is dead and buried, which begs a question, what do I need to let go of and bury? If you're going to move forward into the promises that God has for your life, what do you need to let go of and bury. And maybe it's a past relationship, or maybe it's a past failure. Maybe, like for the Israelites, it's past accomplishments. It's all these things that God has done in the past that were great. But you know what? He's got other things ahead of you. Your best days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. They, they could have easily reasoned, the guy who got us where we are is gone. We're sunk. And so God reminds Joshua, Moses may be dead, but I'm not. And I want to do great things through you, far greater than anything I did through Moses. And God may be telling you this morning, you need to let go of your past. This is what, it's what we were talking about in the last series. It's what Paul says to us, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But we have to let go of what's behind us. Listen, my promises are good and I'll take you there. But you can't keep moving forward if you keep holding on to what's behind you. You have to let go of what's behind you to be able to move forward with me and trust me with your future. And I just want to say this, that, that, that sounds easy when you talk about it. I know it's not easy in reality. And so the next thing that we learn here, the next lesson is moving into God's promises requires making a plan. You can't just, it doesn't just happen you have to plan to make that happen. We've all heard this saying, you finish it. If you fail to plan, you... Man, that is such excitement on that. Uh, let's try that one more time. If you plan to fail, you... Wait a minute, did I say that wrong? I said that wrong. But I did that on purpose so you would know what you're supposed to say. If you fail to plan... There we go. If you fail to read it correctly. Listen, look verse 2 again. God said this, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, what does he say? 
get ready, get ready. God says to Joshua, get ready. And Joshua's response in verse 11 is he sends the leaders out among the people and he tells them, get your provisions ready. The future belongs to God. But here's the thing, you and I need to prepare for it. We have to be ready for it. I like the way the Living Bible words, Proverbs 27, a sensible man watches for problems ahead and prepares to meet them. The simpleton never looks and suffers the consequences. John Maxwell said this, it's on your notes, 95% of the people have never written out their goals. So think about that. Look around the room, 95% of us, if this is true, 95% of us have never written out our goals. Think about that. Which side of that are you on? But he said this, but of the 5% who have, 95% of them actually reach their goals. It pays to plan. And here's what God shows us about that plan, by the way, right? If we're going to move forward into his promises, we have to begin with the end in mind. In verses 3 and 4, Joshua reminds, he's being reminded of where they're going to end up in this land. This was promised to the Israelites over and over again. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 3, he says this, God tells them, I'm going to bring you into this good and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he repeats this promise, describing where they're going. It's a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Before they ever got there, God is drawing this picture. He's filling in the details. He's painting it up so that they know this is, what we're, this is why we're moving forward. This is why we're paying this price. This is why we're doing what we're doing because this is where we're going to end up, which begs this question. What do you want your faith to look like at the end of this year? By the end of 2019, what is it that you want to be true of you? Because you've got to be able to see it, think through it, be able to pick, put words to it so that you can point at those things and move toward those things, which is how Jesus, by the way, did his ministry. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 reminds us of this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. How did Jesus get through what he went through? How was he able to get past the opposition of the religious leaders? How was he able to make it through the cross? He saw beyond it. He knew what was next. He knew that that wasn't the end. There was something else beyond that, not just for him, but for us. And because he could see what it looked like, he was able to work his way through the difficulties of what was in front of him. Let me give you another one. Moving forward into God's promise means I cannot let fear stop me. That's what Adam was talking about last week, by the way. And I don't know about you. He was talking. I thought he was talking to me. Uh, what he was saying about fear stopping us dead in our tracks, that has happened to me. I, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Three times in this passage, there's a phrase. Three times God says this to Joshua. I don't know if you picked up on this or not. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do you think, he, had, do you think jo- he thought Joshua had a bad memory? Or was there a reason he kept saying this over and over again? Why would he emphasize this? Here's what I think. I think it's because their parents had this chance 40 years ago. And the children knew that their parents had blown it, wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and they had died there. 
And now their toes are on the edge of the bank looking across the Jordan River. And they're standing at the same place that their parents had 40 years ago. How did they feel at that moment? My guess is they felt afraid, just like their parents did, for good reason. They need to cross over into a new land, knowing that the moment they do, it is an act of aggression. The, the, the people who live there will see that as an act of aggression, knowing that on the other side of the river are seven nations, and every one of them are larger and stronger than the Israelite nation. And by the way, Israel didn't have an army. They'd been slaves for 400 years. There were farmers and wives and children. There was no army, and they were going to cross the river, cross the border into who knows how many years of battle. And you know what, what God is saying, be strong and courageous, is because there are things on the other side of the river that want to tear them down, that want to see them not succeed, just like there are things in front of you in your life. My guess is for some of us, we're staring them in the eyeballs this morning that want to tear us down. They want to make sure we don't succeed, distract us, depress us, discourage us. You know what I think people fear most about making big plans? They stand on the edge of this huge decision and it just scares them silly. My guess is it's this fear of failure. They're afraid they're going to make these big plans and people will find out and then something will happen and their plans will fail and they'll look stupid. Is that, has that ever been you? I have a friend, someone very close to me, who will, when they make a big plan, they won't tell anybody about it because they don't want anyone to know in case they don't accomplish it. So I've been part of our Run for God group here at MCC, which if you don't know, it's a Bible study rolled into a couch to 5K group. Some are running, they're training for 10Ks. Uh, one of our guys just ran a marathon. And, uh, but I've been training to run the 5K, and I thought to myself as, as I've gotten ready for this, I think I can do a 10K. I think I can prepare to do a 10K, which I've never ran that far ever in my whole life. And so I thought, you know what, I can do that. And so I signed up for the Wright Pat Air Force Base 10K in September. And then I put it on Facebook. And then I mentioned it last hour and found out I have a wedding that day. Even though my wife said, have you looked at your calendar yet? <laughs> I said, there's nothing on my calendar. So, at any rate, but it's this, you know, you set yourself up, you tell somebody you're going to do something, and then the obstacles start to pop up as to can you really do this, will you really do this? I love what Abraham Lincoln said, success is going from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. Listen, the greatest mistake in life is to be in constant fear that you'll make one. I love the story. It happened back my junior year in high school, 1978. The London firemen were on strike. And so uh, it was during this time a great rescue attempt was made because the British Army had taken over the emergency run. So in January 14th, they were called out by an elderly lady in South London to rescue her cat who had gotten trapped in the tree. They arrived with impressive speed. And soon the cat was safely on the ground. This old lady was so happy with them. I mean, she had them in for tea and cookies, and they just were loving on each other and hugging. And later, after waving goodbye, fond farewells, as they leave her property, 
they ran over the cat. It's always interesting to hear who the cat and dog people are in the room because cat people don't find that funny. But us dog people, we're slightly amused by that <laughs> and still Christians. Okay, so uh, Ben Stein said this on your notes. The human spirit is never finished when it's defeated. It's finished when it surrenders. But Satan wants to paralyze us with fear. And so God says, be strong and courageous. Just like I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And Jesus' last words to his followers before he went to heaven after his earthly ministry, I am with you always. You are never alone. I'll always be there with you to the very end of the age. Here's the last one. If you want to move into God's promises, you've got to stay with God. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all of the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. God knows that Joshua is about to enter into battle for the next 20 years of his life, and God tells him then what he's telling us now. His word, the Bible, right, is the instruction manual for conflicts. You want to know how to handle conflicts in your life? God tells us in his word. Notice he says in verse 7, be careful to obey all of the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. What does that mean? Why did he say that? First, it's easy to get sidetracked. I mean, how easy is that? Let's say you're planning your work, then you're working the plan, and you're working, working, planning, planning, working, working. Who gets left out first? Who's, who's the easiest to let slip to the side if it's not God, right? You can't see him anyway, and so you're doing this thing, and he kind of gets pushed to the side. But second, in verses 7 and 8, success is promised twice. And that promise of success has absolutely nothing to do with your ability. It has everything to do with your commitment to God and his word. And in case you're wondering about that, you may be surprised because moving forward with Jesus into these promises in your future is not about rule following. It's all about relationship. So all the way back in the beginning, it's how the whole story starts. It's Adam and Eve. It's in the garden. We're created for this relationship with God. And so in the Garden of Eden, God creates us. We have this relationship. But somewhere along the line, can we get those slides up? I want to make sure they catch us. So somewhere along the line, uh, we blow it, and there's a separation between us and God. And we know what it was in the garden. It was Adam and Eve sinning, right? Separated them from God. But we also know today, my, my problem is not, my separation from God, any problem I have with him isn't because Adam and Eve sinned. Who, who's, who, what's my problem with God? My problem is my sin. What's your problem with God? It's your sin. We don't want to talk about it in church, but that's what the problem is. And so we know that this is a problem, and we know we caused it. God didn't cause this. And so we try to fix this by doing good things, and we keep trying to do good things, but we know that's not good. They keep coming up short. We never make it. And we want to take care of this before it goes into eternity because we know if it lasts into eternity, that's called hell, eternal separation from God, and we do not want that. The good news of our faith is that 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to take care of the problem we couldn't take care of for ourselves. And so he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us, 
And the Bible says there are only three things that we need to do. If we want to make this journey, this trek back to God, there's three things that we need to do. The first one is we just need to believe. Do you really believe that you have a sin problem that you can't solve yourself? You can't take care of it yourself, that you need help? Because the Bible tells us that God loves us so much, he took care of it for us. He sent his one and only son uh, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So the first step is just believing that this is true. The second step is to repent, which means own it. It's not your fault, God, that this happened. It's not my parents. It's not, you know, the people who live next door. It's not the people. That, it's me. I made the decisions that got me where I am. And so I own that, and I'm going to change my direction. I will repent and turn to God uh, so that my sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And the third step the Bible talks about is being baptized. On the day of Pentecost, when the people say to Peter, what do we need to do? This is his response. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God has made promises about what life with him can look like. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus makes this promise that he has come that we may have life and have it to the full. In John chapter 16, Jesus promises us that we're going to have problems. He never says it's going to be carefree. This is a promise. You will have trouble. But let me help you out. I've overcome the world. You're never alone. I will be with you. As a matter of fact, again, the promise in Matthew 28, the last thing Jesus says is, I will always be with you. I will always, always be with you. So your next step this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus already, is just to recommit to this, that I will walk with Jesus every day. And I want to make sure you get this, not merely go to church. People who are walking with Jesus every day, you're going to find in church but just going to church isn't what it means to walk with Jesus every day. There's so much more to it than that. It's a day-by-day it's a -day decision, sometimes an hour-by-hour, hour, sometimes minute-by-minute minute decision that you're going to keep following Jesus, and you have to make that commitment. Here's the other one. If you've never made the commitment, I will give my life to him. I was talking to someone this morning as they were coming in. His uncle is going to come and baptize him here uh, on Father's Day. That's when his uncle is on staff at another church, and he wants to be baptized here, and that's when his uncle can come. And so, listen, that, that is incredible. And I just want to say, if that's you today, if you have come and you've never given your life to Jesus, today's the day. I'll be right up here after the service. If you want to talk about that, I would be glad. I would love. It would be my pleasure to help you with that. Yesterday in Dayton, a hate group had a rally scheduled. I don't know if you read about this in the paper or if you were there. Five to 600 protesters gathered to show their opposition to the hate group's message. 350 police officers were assembled to keep the peace. And according to Dayton City Manager, the KKK rally cost the city about $650,000 in personnel and materials to keep at bay the nine people who actually showed up uh, for the rally. And I don't know if you read that or not. When I was reading that online, I just started, you know, laughing a little bit. Uh, uh, not at the cost, but at the total number of people who actually showed up for the rally. Uh, and I appreciated, and I think part of what happened was 
the slogan that came out here in Dayton. Did you see it? United Against Hate. I don't know who came up with that. I appreciated that they did that and that people grabbed hold of it. I know I grabbed hold of it yesterday in my quiet time. Uh, I was re- my reading was John 15 and verse 17 says, this is what I command you, love one another. And I thought, what an interesting thing to read on a day like today in Dayton, Ohio. This is what I command you, love one another. So I posted that on Facebook with this comment. Seems like a good reminder on a day like today in Dayton, Ohio, united against hate. In hindsight, what I wish I would have said instead of united against hate was united for love because there's supposed to be something different about us. We ought not be known what we're against we ought to be know what we're f- known by what we're for. When Peter talks about who we are as a people, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a special possession of God that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. There ought to be something different about us when we stand up for something or for someone. And each week we celebrate the event which allows us, actually invites us, actually calls us to be a chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this special possession of God. On this weekend, we're all keenly aware that we celebrate our nation's Memorial Day. Every week in worship, we celebrate our kingdom's memorial event. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross by taking the penalty for our sins. And if we believe that and we respond to that with our life, how we live, that's what makes this verse true about us. So today we take the bread that reminds us of his body broken for us and the juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for us on the cross that we might be children of God, royal priesthood, chosen, holy, special. Let's go to him. God, thank you for this time when we stop and we get a chance to consider what our next step is in our faith because we are about to recommit ourselves to you. There was a day when many of us in this room made this decision to be followers of yours And we made that promise to you in the waters of the baptistry. And so, God, we come to this moment now saying, this is still who I want to be. I recommit myself to your kingdom, to your cause, to being a chosen person, a royal priesthood, special possession of the king. And God, we do that as we remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, and what he did for us on the cross, that he accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. So God, thank you for that. And it is our prayer that as we remember and as we recommit ourselves to you, that you will be honored. Father, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.